welcome to the Lovely Radical podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and Lovely Radical is a mission that for me began many years ago, wanting to retain the ability to be lovely whilst also being a radical agent for change and transformation in my own reality and that of those who are ready for more. I'm a life and business coach helping people all around the world become the leaders of their own lives, a master practitioner of hypnosis, neurolinguistic programming, and something incredible called emotional change technique. I've taught around the world and for the last five years coached people across five continents and helped them remove their barriers to finding their soulmates, healing their bodies, and making 10K months or more in their businesses. Because the key I've found lies in our unconscious mind, here we will discuss many things around mindset, communication, business strategy, real self-love, manifestation, language, and so much more. Many of these topics have been requested by you, and we will discuss with some dear friends of mine who may pop in from time to time. This is a no-filter zone, and some of the content may trigger you, and that's great. Did you know that our triggers are actually the pathway to our desires? And we are usually triggered by things that are unfamiliar and that we haven't yet made sense of. And if knowledge is power, imagine if you have the wrong knowledge and that's why you feel stuck. If you're looking for ways to take this knowledge to a higher level, you can connect with me anytime and ask about LRA my coaching academy. So step into the arena, lean into the knowledge to integrate the light and the dark, spirituality and business, and let's have some fun while we create a better life than we could have possibly imagined together. He's been called one of the most dynamic speakers in the world. Drew Dudley is on a mission to help people unlearn some dangerous lessons about leadership. As the founder and chief catalyst of Day One Leadership, he has helped top organizations around the world increase their leadership capacity. He has clients who have included McDonald's, American Express, JP Morgan Chase, the United Way, and more than 100 colleges and universities. And prior to this, Drew spent eight years as the lead at one of Canada's largest leadership development programs at the University of Toronto. Drew also is a best-selling author of This Is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. It debuted at number six on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And as a speaker, Drew has delivered keynotes to more than 250,000 people across five continents. And his TED Talk, Everyday Leadership, The Lollipop Moment, has been voted one of the top 15 most inspirational TED Talks of all time. Drew Dudley, welcome to the show. Absolutely thrilled to be here chatting with you. It's so cool. Firstly, I wanted to share another lollipop moment with you. (laughs) For those of you who are listening who haven't seen the TED Talk, I'll put it in the show notes. But in a nutshell, you told us a story about how a woman approached you and told you her life had been incredibly changed because of something you said and did that you didn't even remember doing. And seven years ago, I was in a work meeting and they played your TED talk and I was bawling my eyes out in the back of this new job work meeting (laughs) because I realized I had so many people that had given me these moments that I hadn't told. And some people had also started telling me their stories of me at this point. And so I started telling people 
what they'd meant and what they'd done. And I also took it to a different layer and told some of the people who had been hard catalysts in my life that I was grateful for what had happened and thanked them for what had happened. And I know that that not only drove me to lead myself better, but also it helped others forgive their behaviors for doing the best they could at the time. And it's helped me to build my brand and impact a lot of people around the world as well. And so I wanted to tell you, you've been a very important person in my life. And wow. yeah. <laughs> so thank you for everything that you do. It's really reaching far. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Absolute, absolute pleasure. Um, share with us a bit about your journey. So what initially inspired you to begin this mission for better leadership? You know, it was all an accident. I found that most people, if you talk to individuals who are truly happy with what they're doing or seem to have found their way to something that makes them feel more energized when it's over, no matter how hard it is, I think that's how you know you're working on something about which you're passionate is you actually feel like you have more energy when you're done than you had before you started, no matter how hard it was and how much work you had to do. And most people I know who are in that vibe weren't trying to get there. It, it, I stumbled into it. So I went away to school when I was you know, 20 years old, planning on being a lawyer because I loved to talk and I had good grades in school. And if you get 99s in school, and you like science, well, then you're going to be a doctor. And if you get 99s and you don't like science, you're going to be a lawyer. And I went off to school and took a job in, towards the end of my time there to impress a girl. Uh, not even to impress a girl, I just wanted to be around her. And to be around her, I had to stay in the same place. I had to stay on campus. So I needed a job on campus. So I took one that I wasn't really that interested in to be honest, be, but I wanted to, to be have the chance to stick around. And I, I think the girl's name was Megan. Uh, for someone who had such an earth shattering impact on my life, it's weird to know that I don't even really remember the name, but I do know that I got involved in this charity and everything changed. And it was the first time in my life where I'd actually tried to do something, engage with the world instead of trying to just comment on it or write papers about it. And so I took a graphic design job, or so I thought it was, but part of it was a fundraiser. And I didn't want to be a fundraiser, but I wanted this job. And it turned out that that fundraiser connected me to some of the most incredible people in my life, people who inspired me and changed the way I looked at the world and my role in it. And the next thing you knew, I was getting heavily involved in things that weren't academic. And I was trying to identify opportunities to actually build things with other people. And it was the most exhilarating stuff I'd ever done. And it used to be figuring out a way to please one person, a teacher, a professor, a parent, an adult of any kind as a kid. That's, that was the biggest reward, right? As I figured out what they wanted and I delivered it, whether it was academic work or athletic work or just being a good kid, right? Mm -hmm. But once I started doing that, it was all different. Once I got involved in the charity work, it was as if electricity got like fired through my brains or through through my body and and my brain was on fire and all of a sudden the things that we did mattered and that's really how it started and, and 
as I started to talk about the things I learned through that experience running this national student charity, one of the workshops I was running, which weren't about leadership per se, or I never say they were about leadership, they were workshops on how to effectively accomplish goals as a team, which of course is leadership, but at the time, I wasn't gonna call it that. I never thought of it as that. I thought of it as getting things done as a group. And the Dean of the University of Toronto saw one of these workshops and he said, this is the type of leadership we wanna teach our students. And I said, well, yeah, but I'm not some academic, I'm not some researcher who could talk leadership theory. And the point is that I realized, and he was right, is that none of these young people really felt like they had any power in their lives. They were 18, 19 years old, they had part-time jobs and they weren't the boss of those jobs. They lived with their parents. Their parents told them what they could do and when they could go out of the house. And their teachers and professors their whole lives had told them exactly what they had to do and how many words they could do it in. And to me, that's a group of people without any power. So what's the point of talking about a form of leadership that's entirely dependent on power, which is traditionally how we've discussed it? It didn't mean anything to these students. So I had to talk about leadership in a different way. And that's what led to the entire sort of approach of leadership existing in these individual moments or shorthand in these lollipop moments. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you just shared that you were kind of inspired by a girl because <laughs> it's funny because same with my journey, my one of my gateways into self-development was yoga and meditation. And I started going to yoga to hopefully bump into a guy more often. And I hear those stories so much, but they're kind of in whispered tones of like, oh, that's a bit embarrassing. But I was like, no, own it. Like if it created something beautiful, I think that's so cool. So I just love that you shared that. And um, what are some- It's also- it's it's also a reminder that there are more Rosalines in the world than Juliet's. Uh, you know, for all of you who didn't pay attention in English class, Rosaline is the woman at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet that Romeo cannot live without. She is his sun, his moon, and his stars. And the whole first scene is about how Rosaline is the greatest thing and he can't live without her. And we never even meet Rosaline. We don't. She doesn't get mentioned again after Act 1. And I try to remember that most of the jobs, the people, the money, the opportunities that we swear we must have in this world, most of them are going to be Rosalind's, not Juliet's. And I always try to, when I don't get something I really wanted, I, I always think, yeah, it was probably a Rosaline. And hey, Rosaline is, is I'm sure she's wonderful. Uh, we shouldn't crap all over Rosaline. But I, I do think that the idea that the things we convince ourselves we must have to feel satisfied, to feel successful, to feel happy, most of that stuff is Rosaline. What are some dangerous lessons about leadership we need to unlearn? I think the, one of the most dangerous things that is taught in the education system, and I also want to caution that when I say things are wrong with the education system, I'm not trying to crap on teachers. The fact that a system is, is systemically flawed is not an indication that the people within it are not doing their absolute best or are not amazing people. But there are things in the education system that are learned even though they're never explicitly taught. And I think that one of the most dangerous is the concept of the economy of scarcity. This idea that there's only so much money and there's only so many jobs and anything someone else gets is less for you. And that's such a, a dangerous thing that we're 
teaching. And the thing is, it's never said, but the first time, the first time you ever get a grade, we don't realize the impact that has on our brain. First time we ever get a grade, our brain starts to learn lessons. And one of them is, well, why would they be grading us if it isn't to rank us? And why would they be ranking us if it wasn't to make sure the people at the top get something the people at the bottom don't get? It's the only reason for ranking. And so simply by the act of grading young people, we reinforce this idea that we're competing with one another. And that is what reinforces this idea because once we start to see it as a competition, we start to believe there's winners and there are losers. And the human brain is unbelievable at how well it can convince itself it's losing compared to other people, regardless of how much it has. And so once we adopt this idea there are winners and there are losers, once our brain starts to panic about the fact that it's losing, well, what happens then is that's the source of all of the things we're really ashamed of in our society. That's the source of greed. That's the source of jealousy. That's the source of people building their empires on the exploitation of other people. Like that's the source of the bullying that starts in playgrounds and goes up through workplaces and ends up elected to some of the most powerful and influential positions in the, on the planet. This idea that we live in an economy of scarcity. And that is the most dangerous lesson I think that we're teaching, which is we are competing with one another and the success of other people ultimately means less success for you. It's the source of everything that's a problem. And we start teaching it the moment we start ranking and grading people. And we can claim that it's not all about grades, it's not all about rankings, but as long as we continue to systematically test people with the same tests, and as long as we reward people based on how well they compete with one another when they're teenagers, look, we are rewards-based creatures, and you can say one thing, but it's what you reward that matters. And right now, we reward people who write essays and tests well. And the ones who do that well are the ones who should be given titles and the ones who should be given rewards. And titles becomes the things that people chase. First, the title is a student. Then the title is top of the class. Then the title is up and comer, you know, in the profession. Then the title is, you know, youngest whatever. We trace accolades and titles because that's what's been rewarded. And what we teach is that chase the things that get you rewards. And that means trying to beat other people. And I think that's really dangerous. I think it makes leadership something that only a, a select few, those who like to be the center of attention, those who are particularly articulate, we teach leadership is supposed to be from people who have those particular attributes. And I think that that makes leadership inaccessible to huge swaths of people. And I think that that's, I think that that's exclusionary because I think that if we see leadership as individual moments of impact, I think we recognize everybody, everybody can demonstrate those. It's not the only form of leadership, but it is a form to which we all can and should aspire. And because we only focus on the more specific exclusionary type, what we're doing is we're not starting a conversation about the leadership that exists in huge percentages of the population, because it's power. Individual moments are powerful. And it's the only source of power accessible to everyone on earth. And if that power is accessible to everyone else on earth, the problem is people see that power as being diminished because lots of people have it. And this is one of those rare, rare situations where 
power is not diminished when it's diffused. Absolutely, I'm with you on that. And I, because I work with a lot of people with the unconscious mind and where the, all the programs kind of started in those early years. And it's so interesting noticing people moving through and finding where they first learnt how to be not good enough or they first learnt how to be unworthy and when they can start to rewrite that for themselves now and open up the possibilities it's yeah it's a powerful thing and I've never heard it put that way before so that was awesome um I saw that you traveled around at one point asking people why do you matter and many couldn't come up with an answer which I resonate with um, as I have a lot of conversations along those lines and so I'd love you to talk to me about this journey and how it's informed the work that you're doing yeah the the question of why do you matter is now a staple of what I ask I ask it in every presentation pretty much but it was I never asked it of a student despite regularly being in front of classrooms for over a decade and I had one particular student, a brilliant, brilliant young man, and he was very nervous about what the future held. And so I, I didn't even know how to start the conversation. So I threw that out kind of as a, I don't know, a throwaway question just to get the conversation started. Well, man, why do you matter? And he just, he looked so lost after the question. And then he blinked twice and he said, well, I don't yet. That's why I'm working so hard. And, you know, it's not an acceptable answer to get from somebody that you care about, but I thought it was an outlier. It can't, it can't be everyone feels that way, right? But sure enough, other students, so many other students were saying the same thing. And then my colleagues and senior administrators, and I was so floored by how much difficulty otherwise incredibly successful people to whom I really looked up we're struggling with why do you matter? And I could have given them a list of 15 things, but think of the person in your life who you think matters the most to this world, however you define that. And then ask them that question because they will give you incredibly unsatisfying answers compared to what you would say if given the same piece. And for me, what I came to realize is that I could not articulate the answer to that question. So how on earth do I expect other people whom I'm trying to influence and I'm trying to educate to have any luck answering the question either. Uh, and so I don't think we can get off as educators asking questions that we have not asked ourselves. And I also don't think it's wise as an educator to spend time asking questions that never interested you. Because if they bored you, they're probably boring the people to whom you're posing them as well. So I did not have an answer for why do I matter? And I realized when he came back and he didn't have one either, I was disappointed. And then I thought to myself, well, I can't be disappointed in him because I don't know the answer either. Who am I actually disappointed in? And I thought, how can we claim that what we are delivering to young people in this world is an education when some of the most dynamic and passionate and well-educated people on the planet can't answer the question, why do you matter? Because no one's ever asked them before. Hmm. And I think the part that drives my work is I started to realize that I think what it is is that we hope to matter, right? Oh, I hope to matter. I hope to lead. I hope to make a difference. And I will never, ever discourage people from, from hope. I won't. Hope's such a powerful force. It's just a really bad strategy. Mm. And as such, for me, 
the idea became, okay, if we want to matter, we want to lead, we want to make a difference, maybe the best way I can help other people is to help them plan to matter and plan to lead and plan to make a difference. And so everything that I teach is this process rooted in behavioral psychology that helps people actually live up to the values they claim to stand for. But ultimately what I'm trying to do is provide myself evidence and anybody else who engages in using this process in, I want to generate evidence that we matter every day. If that makes any sense, because mm -hmm. you're not, you're not always in charge of what you get to do every day. As a matter of fact, I'd argue you rarely are in charge of what you get to do every day, but you're always in charge of who you are. And I think that right now we've got a lot of really good leaders out there, whether they call themselves leaders or not, who live their values whenever they get the opportunity. And that is a noble thing and it's something we should celebrate. But what separates great leaders from good leaders is good leaders live their values whenever they get the chance. And I think great leaders create opportunities to live their values. And my work really focuses on, okay, one, what are those values you want to live every day? And then how do we go about not just reacting when we see a chance to live them, but making sure that at least some of our core values are a part of every day of our lives. So that even on the days where everything outside of your control blows up in your face and we will always have those, at least you can go home at the end of the day and say, yeah, but I don't know, in these two moments, I was the woman, I was the man, I was the person I wanted to be, right? That, that's a gift to me. So uh, if someone looked me in the eye now and said, why do you matter? My answer is because I plan to. I don't know how I'm gonna matter today, but I do know I have a plan to matter today because I have all kinds of plans personally and professionally and romantically and uh, you know, psychologically and physically, I have all those plans and I'm gonna do my best to live up to them. But sometimes you need a little help. And so when it comes to living values, it's easy to get distracted. And so what I started to realize was let's create a process where we can cut through the distractions, live our values every day. And then when someone says, why do you matter? I have evidence. I know why I matter. I've done these things. But I think most nights we go to bed and we couldn't point to specific things we've done that matter. We just hope. And, and we got to do more than hope. We got to prove it to ourselves or we won't believe it. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a lot of talk about confidence and motivation in my communities lately and people waiting to feel confident or waiting to be motivated. And yet I attempt to communicate that it's actually by doing the things and stacking the things that you create the motivation and the confidence. So I love that. That was a great we, we, Well, I think the confidence is an interesting thing, right? So many people, particularly young women, like the response I get is, well, I'm working on my confidence. I'm working on my confidence. I'm working on my confidence. Any of you out there that are, are, it bothers you how confident you are, whether usually in, in the case that you don't feel you're confident enough, confidence is not an essential part of leadership. It isn't. It, it is confidence is acting like something doesn't scare you. And that's cool, but it means that you can act the whole time. You don't actually ever have to do anything to prove your confidence. You can just act confident. I believe that it's not confidence that defines leaders, it's courage. And so confidence is acting like something doesn't scare, scare you. Courage is acknowledging it scares you and taking action anyway. Courage is a commitment to taking action when there is the possibility of loss. So confidence requires being an actor. Courage requires taking action. 
So everyone out there who's like, the thing that's standing in my way for asking the thing for I deserve or taking the plunge or seizing something I really believe I'm ready for, if the only thing you're telling yourself is, well, I need to work on my confidence. Don't, I don't care. The best leaders I know, most of them are not confident at all. Most of them are neurotic as all hell, yeah. but they're <laughs> courageous. Like they are so courageous. They, they know they don't know, they know it might screw up. They are not sure they're gonna be able to do it and they just step forward anyway. And that, like the number of people who are waiting, who think that confidence is a prerequisite for courage, it is not. As a matter of fact, it is a poor man's version of courage. So all of you out there who don't think you're confident, screw it. That I, I've heard this in a million different places since, but one guy taught it to me years ago, and he said, the, the quality of my life is in large part determined by how well and how often I say to myself, am I capable of five seconds of extraordinary courage right now? And I've heard it since then. I've heard 10 seconds, 15 seconds. But the, the first guy to ever tell me that has stuck with me forever, the difference between confidence and courage, confidence, whatever. You can spend your whole life waiting to be, feel like you're ready. Screw it. Worry about your courage. I couldn't care less whether you're confident or not. And too many people are waiting for themselves to feel like they're confident as if it's a prerequisite. Confidence is a prerequisite for nothing in leadership. Yeah, Sorry, I went a little rant there. Yay. <laughs> it's the best. Um, having worked with such an array of people and organizations, do you notice, other than confidence and courage, any trends of resistance in doing this journey to lead themselves better and lead better? Yeah, I think because it wasn't taught as leadership, uh, it's seen by some people who have, de have the more you put, the more you invest in something, the more you will defend defend the thing as you perceived it when you invested in it. So if you have worked 100 hours a week for 10 years, if you went to three different grad schools, uh, if you have sacrificed and stressed out and poured everything in your life into becoming senior executive whatever by the time you're 35, to have anyone on earth tell you that that's not the only type of leadership that really matters is going to get pushback. That's the biggest pushback is that when people have been told this is what real leadership looks like, titles, money, prestige, center of attention, and they have sacrificed so much for it, to be told that that's not what leadership is in its entirety mm. causes natural pushback. Uh, because I'm not saying that being CEO or senior vice president is something that everyone can or should do or wants to do. But I am saying that there's a form of leadership that's focused on individual daily consistent behaviors that some very high performing people skip over. And the biggest resistance I get is that when people wholesalely bought into the idea of what a leader looks like, what a leader should do, and has dedicated their entire life to chasing and embracing that model, then it is extremely difficult for someone to walk in and tell you anything that makes it seem as if you might have made a mistake. And you didn't. Hey, if you worked 100, well, if you work 100 hours a week, I don't think it's worth it. Um, like I almost hurt myself because of a job, it's not. But I do understand that we live in the world of hustle culture and to sit on a panel, which I've done before and look out at young entrepreneurships or, or entrepreneurs or hopeful or wannabe entrepreneurs and say that if I work more than 40 hours a week, I fail myself. Um, they stop paying attention because that's not 
that's not what Gary Vanderchuk says. That's not what all the, you know, what, what people online say. It's all about get up at 5 a.m. and out hustle everybody. Well, I did that and I almost died. Mm. And so the idea is to create a life where, you know how long and hard I worked so that I can have the privilege of saying I won't work more than 40 hours a week? Uh, that took a lot. And to me, I'd rather be able to say that than have $25 million in the bank. Because what good is your $25 million when all you do is act the exact same way you did? You don't use it for any more leisure. You don't use it for any more health. You don't use it for any more uh, impact on the world, except to get up and go and do the exact same thing you did when you had $0 as you're now doing with $25 million. Uh, I do a lot less work now than when I was trying to make that first million dollars, if that makes any sense at all. If I wasn't, what the hell did I do all that work for? Right? Just like, why did I work my ass off at 29? If not, so that at 46, I could be like, no, that's it for me this week. Um, otherwise, you just do it forever. And when are you saving it all for? So I think one of the most toxic things is hustle culture. I really feel that it's dangerous. And I've learned that boundaries means losing things. I, I don't understand how at what point we thought we could make boundaries and lose nothing. Like that's not how boundaries work. Like when you put a boundary up, you are putting something on the other side of that boundary. And I think it's important for all of us to acknowledge that when you're identifying where to put up boundaries, which will make your life better, um, you are effectively choosing things that are no longer gonna be a part of your life. And we've really got to stop acting like that isn't the case. <laughs> like people, you can't set boundaries and get everything you had before. Yeah. If you did, you wouldn't need the boundaries. So anyway, I'm not sure I answered your question there, but it's I was perfect. in Madrid a couple of days ago, so I'm a little jet lagged. Great. It's the best. I've not had much sleep either. Um, so you touched on really powerful points there, a number of them. The one that feels most alive is the perceptions piece, because a lot of the times, and even just at the end there, you touched on like how things will change if we choose to put boundaries up or if we want a changed life, then we need to change and potentially need to challenge our own perceptions and our stories that we're running about whatever it is. And what would you think is a good first step to start challenging our own perceptions, especially if we've built up tenure of... <laughs> well, uh... The, the word why is a, is a great way of starting. Mm. So take a look at every relationship in your life. And when I say relationship, I don't just mean with people. I mean with jobs, with places, the city you live in, the job that you're in, the, the friends that you have, uh, your mental health, your physical health. All of these things are relationships that you have. And take a look at every relationship in your life and ask why. Why is this relationship in my life? Why do I keep it in my life? We lose, the word why is a three word, three letter knowledge generating machine. So, and I know this seems weird, but the next time you're out having coffee with someone, ask yourself, why is this person in my life? And what you'll often find is that the reason they were in your life is no longer valid. And so I think one of the ways that we can start effectively setting boundaries is by effectively doing assessments. And there's a few questions I always ask, go through, write down every relationship you have in your life with your body with your mind with your uh significant other with potential significant others with friends with enemies uh with the city you live in with the job you're at uh with your favorite tv show whatever every relationship you can think of write it down 
and then ask a series of questions about every relationship in your life. Number one is why. Why is this relationship in my life? What does it bring me? What does it take from me? Two, uh, is this person, like, is this relationship keeping me grounded or is this relationship weighing me down? Um, there's a, oh, I said, um, for a professional speaker, that's, that's a crime. <laughs> I know, I actually heard myself catch it, but look at it this way. A woman came in years and years ago, I was a music producer and not a very good one. But a woman came in and, and submitted a song for an album. And the song said, there's a difference between grounded and run into the ground. And some things keep you rooted and some just weigh you down. And you have to decide what you'd rather keep around. And for me, when you make that list of every relationship, first you start asking why. A lot of the things in our lives we do not question if they've been there a long time. Two, the other piece to ask is, is this keeping me grounded or is this weighing me down? Does this give me stability? Does this give me strength? Does this give me pride? Does this give me momentum? Or is this weighing me down? Which means, is this something that's just in my life because it makes other people okay with me? But it doesn't work for me. Weighing you down are things that are still in your life only because of how other people will view you if you get rid of them. And then the other piece is, where in my life am I settling? Am I settling in my physical health, my mental health, my relationships, my romance, whatever it is, where in my life am I settling? Because no matter how old you are, you're too young to settle. But I think breaking your life down into the many relationships within it and asking things like the why, asking which categories this fall into, is this rooted or is this weighing down? And then that other piece, where in my life am I settling? So even the stuff that keeps you rooted then you have to ask, am I settling for this? Could I be more secure? Could I expect more? And I think that that's a great place to start by doing an assessment of where you are. And I think that we're really bad at accurately assessing that. And I learned that when I heard a line from a TV show where one character says to another, hey, we used to be friends. And he said, we were never friends. We just drank together. And I realized that something that looks like it's one thing can appear that can very much be another. Like one thing I tell young people is that there is, and there is nothing wrong with this when you're young, but it's important to know it, that you have friends and you have people that you drink with and they're not the same thing. Some mm -hmm. of your friends are also people you drink with, but not everyone you drink with are your friends, even if you like them, but they're not. And it made me realize how important it was to not take relationships in our lives sorry, not leave relationships in our lives unexamined. What are they and what do they actually provide? Because when we get our hearts broken, it's often because we were not clear on what we expected from a relationship. And, or that we didn't, we didn't want to come to grips with the disconnect uh, that people needed different things from it. And you know, I think that's really important is to look at the relationships in your life and start assessing them. What are they? Why are they? And what really, and what impact are they having on me? Because only when you're fully aware of that, can you start to make changes based on that information. Because otherwise we start cutting things out of our lives just because we think we need less stuff in our lives, but we didn't actually assess what it was. It's like work-life balance, the terrible expression. You're not looking for balance. Balance means it has to be the same. Yeah. What you're looking for is harmony, yeah. right? Because harmony, like one part of the harmony can carry it much more than another for a while and then it switches. Harmony is about how things integrate with one another 
as opposed to how they balance one another out. And so some things, in, it shouldn't be about whether you're balanced between work and life. It should be whether you're balanced between things that give you energy and things that take energy. Because your friends sometimes will give you energy and they'd be part of the life balance. But sometimes your friends drain your energy. And instead of looking at work-life balance, we should be looking at energy in, energy out harmony, energy in, energy out balance. So the only way we can do that is by first doing an honest assessment of where we are. What are each of these relationships? Do they keep me grounded or weigh me down? Where in my life am I settling? Absolutely. And of course, the why. Yeah, absolutely. I used to joke about balance because I thought about balance for my parents was work and life. That's kind of all they, they did. And then for me, it was multiple jobs, chronic illness, partners, no partners, all these things were coming into play. It wasn't just like the two sides of the coin. And I was like, how can I have balance and harmony is the missing piece for that story. So that's great. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, it's more like music. There's a bunch of parts of music. Yeah. And sometimes the baseline is all you need. But when it's really hitting, there's an awful lot of different pieces. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the piccolo is a relatively small piece, but you hear it. But if it was all balanced, there'd be too much piccolo. <laughs> I have no idea why I just chose piccolo. <laughs> so great. Um, a lot of people in the audience are on a journey of taking painful experiences from the past and turning it into something better. And I'd love for you to speak into if there's a harder moment in your own journey that you were able to transform and lead yourself forward from. There's lots. I mean, the entire yeah. concept of my work day one is based really on my experience in recovery from alcoholism. The idea that the number one thing, if you want to not have a drink for the rest of your life, is you must choose not to have a drink today. And that's the only choice that matters. And yes, it's an incredibly hard choice and you don't have to make it tomorrow. And it doesn't matter if you made it yesterday, but just do it today, okay? Just do it one day, that's all. And that's really what recovery is. It's just, I know I won't be able to do it tomorrow and I know I didn't do it yesterday, but I can do it today, that's it. But that singular focus on the non-negotiable in a given day is the same approach that you know, I really braced for leadership, which is every single day, make a decision to demonstrate that you live your values. And so that to me, the process of coming through alcoholism is inherent in the work that I do. In terms of a very practical tip though, because you know, one thing I found is that the work that I do is that your story is irrelevant, except in how it is related to by people listening. So for those of you listening, this is different for everybody because I'm coming to better understand PTSD and the power of trauma. And so I have to trust the people listening to know, to be able to identify for themselves which experience in their life would be appropriate for this. But we all have experiences that we can access that we remember as difficult parts of our lives. Now, one thing I know is that there are experiences we all have that it's not healthy to access, but we all have those parts of our lives that were very hard, but we can, in a way that will not cause us further trauma, we can access them. There's my little caveat, right? Yeah. <laughs> so don't go accessing parts of your brain that hurt you, but it, we all have scars that we can access. 
I treat that day as my New Year's Day because I believe that New Year's Day is completely arbitrary. And we put a whole bunch of talk into like new beginnings and on January 1st, we're all like, hey, we did it, we made it another year. But that day means nothing to most people. As a matter of fact, December 31st, January 1st, nobody does anything, so it's hard for those days to mean anything in the grandest part of your life. So what I always tell people is pick the worst day of your life, the day where you can't believe you made it through, and make that your New Year's Eve. That, sorry, that's your New Year's Day. Because right now we're like January 1st, everyone celebrates that we made it another year, but what are you celebrating exactly? But if you take the one year or the anniversary of the worst day of your life, and you treat that as your New Year's, that as your day of rebirth, that as your day of renewal, every single year you're celebrating another year that you made it through, another year where you healed, another year where you, year where you grew. January 1st doesn't mean anything to most of us, but for me, January 17th is the darkest day that I have in my life. As such, it's January 17th where I celebrate New Year's because that represents another year of me living with that pain, growing with that, dealing with ways of healing from it, getting better, having some of my scars form more fully, understanding them better. Every single year on the anniversary of the worst day of my life, that is a day we're celebrating as your New Year's. I recommend you do that too, because then you have an ability to sit back and say, I did it another year. I got through another year of pain, another year of loss, another year of sorrow, another year of regret, and all of it's a little bit better. That is what I, that I think is a key way of starting to change the way that you look at your scars. The other piece too is my work involves telling people to take their values and turn them into questions. Because on a behavioral psychology level, the human brain will change your behavior to find the answer to a question because it really hates having unanswered questions inside of it. And so one of the things that we do is we create these questions every single day that we, that we try to answer. A woman once identified resilience as one of her values and using the process that we use to try to turn values into questions to make it more likely you'll live up to them. Is she introduced me to the concept of kintsugi, which is a Japanese art form. Mm. And in that art form, it involves taking broken pottery and putting it back together using liquid gold. And so the most beautiful parts of the pottery are the parts where it was broken. And to me, I try, what she told me, that that's what she thought of every single day to remind herself of the resilience she wanted to demonstrate for herself, for her daughters. When she told me about Kintsugi, this, this art where the most beautiful parts of the parts where it was broken, that resonated with me in a big way. And so for anyone listening out there, keep that in mind. Go and look up what Kintsugi, I think it's K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I online, and they're dazzling. But I always try to see myself as a piece of that art form ever since, ever since she said that to me. The most beautiful parts are where I was broken because they're the parts that got put back together with gold. I kind of like that. I love that. So I ask this question to everyone at the end of the podcast. And since it was inspired by your talk, it's kind of surreal that I'm asking you, <laughs> um, what does leadership mean to you? 
in this moment <laughs> in this moment i'm going to give an answer i've never given before okay. because you get asked that question so many times yeah. and yes i have my standard answers and i believe in my standard answers but i think that leadership means a level of egalitarianism that is opposite to how it has been traditionally defined because i think we teach leadership in a way that makes people see it as reserved for a relatively small subsection not everyone can or should be a leader that's why we compete with one another in order to get there however if we redefine leadership and we define it as these individual moments of interpersonal interaction moments of compassion moments of forgiveness of recognition of accountability of respect of self-respect if we define leadership as existing in those individual moments of interpersonal impact it means that leadership is accessible to everyone on the planet and the reason that what leadership means to me is a form of power accessible to everyone and it's the only form of power on earth that's accessible to everyone on the planet every form of power on earth has systemic barriers between that power and most of the people on the planet except the ability to create individual moments of interpersonal impact if victor frankl taught us anything it's that that never gets taken away and that makes it far more powerful than money that makes it far more powerful than political influence it makes it far more powerful than fame or notoriety because nobody everyone can take those things away and and then the world decides if you get it back or not right and the ability to create those moments though that's yours it's always yours that's the only power that can never be taken away and it's the only power that's accessible to everyone the thing is that power is addictive and what happens is power is seen as unimportant if everyone has it which is why that form of power that i just talked about isn't called power we call it the little things little things kindness and accountability and recognizing they're little that's because any power that is perceived to belong to everyone is seen as less than and so what i really see when i see what leadership means leadership means access to power available to everyone that however minimizes power that's available to only a few and so people who have that power that's not as accessible they want to diminish all power that isn't that makes them stronger at least in their mind mm -hmm. so that's what leadership means to me it means an opportunity for everyone to have power and there's not a lot of places on this planet where that's that is possible i think we get or let's be let's be straight up desired by a lot of people yeah yeah so what's next for you what are you excited about for the future i'm going to see cocaine bear tonight and <laughs> and i i'm pretty sure that that is going to give me one hour and 38 minutes of not having to use my brain and i think that that rest i will then be i will then put to good use in some way shape or form um, honestly i i'm working on uh two different books one that is similar to the last one that i did and one that has nothing to do with it uh, i'm more excited about the goofy one which is just a book that started like so many books about a couple of friends getting into a stupid argument over what kind of superpower they would like to have <laughs> and as goofy as this is i wanted to write something 
that could give people a smile inside of three minutes. And so we're writing a book about what we call subtle powers, little superpowers that you have that nobody can tell you're using them that benefit your life without ending up creating an arch nemesis. Because why anyone would want a superpower, I don't know. You're now responsible for every life on the planet. Anything that goes wrong, it's because you let it go wrong. And you're almost certainly gonna get an evil supervillain chasing you for some reason. I'm writing a book about subtle powers. Powers like the ability to iron your clothes simply by putting them on your body. That to me is a subtle power. I want to be able to eat any food in any place and not spill any of it. I want to be able to eat a meat belt sub while driving a motorcycle and I don't want to worry about it. <laughs> or if you figure out that you one want... out, let me know. <laughs> no problem. And I know that none of your viewers were, this is not what they tuned in for, but I'm actually really, find the little thing that gets you excited in this world. We have only one evil use of this particular thing, only one subtle power that could be used for evil, and it's this. When someone annoys you, you're able to blink twice and give them the hiccups for 20 minutes. <laughs> and folks, the more you think about that, you're going to laugh right now listening to that. Later on today, you're going to think a little bit more, and you're going to understand how utterly sociopathic that particular little thing is that that power so i don't really trust the person who gave it to me but <laughs> it's gonna make you giggle right. uh, no i i'm excited i'm excited to find ways of just making people laugh i'm excited to find opportunities to gather new stories mm. because the my whole my whole life and you read my book is collecting stories and insights and sharing them and the challenge for me is that for three years who were we sitting with on a train? Who were we sitting with on a plane? Who were we? I haven't been places where no one's checking their phone. We're just engaging with each other. Um, and so it's been, it's been tough to, to gain those new stories. I'm looking forward to returning to a world where people are out creating new stories and sharing them. I'm really excited about that. Oh, absolutely. And cocaine bear. Yeah. What it is cocaine bear? I have no concept of what this oh, is. Apparently in the 80s or the 90s, somewhere in middle America, a bear got into a drug, like a drug, I don't know how it worked, but basically a large shipment of cocaine was consumed by a bear. <laughs> and the bear then went on to terrorize a small American town mm. uh, while hopped up on cocaine for the better part of three days. They yep. determined that this needed to have a very bad movie made about it. And they're not hiding that it's a bad movie. It's about right. a, a bear that does a lot of cocaine. So we're going in eyes wide open. <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty excited about watching a movie about a, a, a bear on cocaine for three days. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone Everybody, who, who tuned into this podcast. Into <laughs> I was going to say that nobody tuning into this podcast thought, we, thought I was going to do that. But honestly, my friends, you making money, getting books on the bestseller list, like, how we define success in business is a lot of different things. But for me, I think when I truly felt that I'd, I'd had success is when I was able to just go to a movie at one o'clock on a Wednesday, some movie that had been out already for like a month and a half, two months. So on Wednesday afternoons at one, I would go to a, a matinee movie that had been out for ages. So I was the only one in the theater but I had worked hard enough to create a career where on one o'clock on a Wednesday, I could just go to a movie. And 
people are like, oh my God, you know, entrepreneurship, it's about staying hard, working on your business. It's about creating a life that allows you to create, you to decide to create more moments that give you that moment of satisfaction. Hmm. Like that's what success is, is when you're happy with what you have, even though you're driven to try to do more. But if you didn't get more, you recognize that what you have in your life is great. Success in business doesn't mean that your business has grown to the point where it now runs you. Success in business is being able to control your work life. And often what we do is we create businesses that then run our lives. And at no point should we lose sight of the fact that if we want to be happy and if we want to demonstrate what it means to be successful, it means that we have to make sure that we don't get to a point in our work lives where we're just doing the same thing every day forever. Like there has to be an end game. And what happens is we get to where we thought we'd be happy and we're like, well, slowing down now is a waste of my time or my talent or this opportunity. It's a waste of all this quiet times you could have spent during that period. Do not allow your company to run you. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to add some fun into it. I love that you mentioned that that's your moment because I recently realized my success moment. Uh, and I've been in coaching containers with people like, what's the next level? How do you expand? And they're like, maybe buy some fancy stuff. And I'm like, nah, eh. And for me, I realized it was being at a bathhouse in the middle of the day on a Thursday and Uber eating uh, iced coffee to the bathhouse from my phone sitting in a lilo. When I used to be scared to spend two dollars on a coffee five years ago so i was like oh this is it this is the moment <laughs> yeah it's also the how much would it have to cost for you to regret having spent it five years from now yeah. that that perspective has really helped me too in, in terms of like oh should i should i should i i now have a, a go-to question how much would this have to cost for me to regret buying it in five years mm. usually it's concert tickets or you know that trip to go see somebody on for the weekend that it makes no sense. Just always think ahead. In five years from now, am I going to think about the bill, or am I going to think about what? I have a friend who did not go see the Super Bowl with Snoop Dogg in his private box because he was worried about how much the ticket was going to cost. And to this day, and I could have told him that at the time. Just how much for you to regret in five years? In five years, you will never think about the cost. You will only think about the opportunity. Absolutely. I teach people a lot about that and that energy of actually giving something that you're working hard for to yourself to enjoy is magnetic. It actually attracts more success and more great people. And it's really fun. Uh, to joy, joy is the sexiest thing on the planet. Mm -hmm. it, it's like, I just, I, I did not realize the truth of that statement the first time someone told it to me because when you i first heard it i was young and the sexiest thing on the planet was youth mm. like that's the problem the sexiest thing on the planet when you're young is youth as you get older i start to realize it's joy yeah. and we the problem is when we're young we get so wrapped up in how we look and compared to other people that and we put so much focus on worrying about or working on that that we do not become nearly as good at figuring out how to be joyful as we are at how to look skinny in a selfie. Yeah. And uh, hey, like, look back at my life and the people who I tend to walk next to and hold my hand are what some people would consider not in my league, but it's amazing what joy and jokes will do for you. 
Um, and I think we got to teach people that in high school. I think so too. Well, it is challenging to express how grateful I am. I must have watched and listened to and shared that TED talk hundreds of times over the years. And I always came back to so it cool. when, yeah, I always came back to it when I needed to remember one of the reasons why I started. Because as you know, it can there can be moments in the success journey, whatever that is for us. And I know this conversation will be a whole new catalyst for me and for so many listening. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And if I can ever come back and answer any more, you let me know. It's I'm so glad that that little talk made its way to you. And for what it's worth, I almost didn't tell it. And it was a friend of mine who had to, who, who convinced me to do so. So if you have a friend out there who is afraid of putting their art out into the world because they think they'll be judged for it, sometimes what being a good friend means is telling your friends to shut the hell up and deal with it you're going to make a decision on their behalf. You. And uh, the problem is when, when to tell the difference, right? Because it's, it's, it's hard. But I, I am on this podcast because a friend of mine wouldn't let me not believe in myself. I'm on this podcast because my late girlfriend wouldn't let me keep my book in a drawer. I'm on this podcast because every step along the way, some friend, not someone I drank with, some friend told me something I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear. And I've always... At the time I was upset and now I look back and I realize what an act of love that was. So every time you're afraid to do something out of love that you're afraid someone will be mad at, in the future, people can usually see the love when everything else falls away. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being there. For those listening, you'll find the ways to connect with both Drew and I in the show notes and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you like this, please do us a favor and share it with your friends and maybe even give us a five-star review. And be sure to tag us on your socials when you listen so that we can send some love your way. If you'd like to learn more about how to work with myself and the Lovely Radical team inside the Academy, make sure you head over to our website at www.lovelyradical.net or send me a DM on Instagram for a chat. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you on the next episode.